thank you that you are the God in heaven who speaks. And Lord, we need to hear your voice this morning. So I ask that you would be faithful in spite of me to penetrate the minds and the hearts of everyone that's in here concerning who you are and where history is going. And so, Lord, I thank you and I praise you. Glorify your word, glorify your name, and encourage us in the hope of glory, I pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Every time I preach, I have a title that I give to my sermons, and inevitably, uh, the title doesn't make it on the internet. For one or two reasons or fifty, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But here's but here's the title. Here's the title here's the title of uh, of the sermon. It's really a question. Is there a God in heaven who reveals mysteries? That's the question I want to answer. And uh, last time I was with you, uh, we dealt with Daniel chapter one, where God's faithfulness is revealed by sovereignly displacing Israel into Babylonian captivity. Why? Because they committed idolatry. They fell away from the living God and traded the real for the fake. And so God promised Israel, if you do not repent, I am going to use your enemies to take you into captivity. And so God did do just that. God kept His promise. God always keeps His promises. And while God sovereignly used the enemies of Israel to displace them, His grace and love was never removed from them. We see Daniel's account is really an account of he and his three friends, how they, in the world, even though they're not of it, how God uses them to impact the inner workings of Babylon in their rule. Now, the conquerors make it their aim to pluck the cream of the crop. I'm just reiterating some of the stuff I talked about last time. And these young youths were taken into the king's service. They were prepared to serve in the king's court. And there was an eradication, there was a strategy to eradicate everything from those who were conquered. And that does not eliminate what took place for Daniel and his three friends. They took them from the motherland into a strange land. They replaced their ruler with a strange ruler. They schooled them in a new language, a new culture, a new education. They gave them new food, and by giving them new names, they completely and totally were trying to take everything that they knew and like wipe it clean. They wanted to decimate their identity. But these three youths, along with Daniel, were youths of the Word. They were covenant people. And I think that their parents had a lot to do 
with why they were the people they were. I think the community of faith that they fellowshiped in had a lot to do with why they were the kind of people they were. I believe their parents obeyed Deuteronomy 6, which takes seriously the teaching of the covenant to the children by the parents, not just the community, not just the leadership in the community. And so what we saw is that these youths, because they were covenant people, because they were people of the Word, they were then empowered to walk in holiness in a culture that utterly was pagan. Today I want to consider in chapter 2 really two things, and that is the dream of a king and its interpretation from a servant reveals the mystery that the kingdoms of men are temporal and God's kingdom alone is eternal. Go to Daniel chapter 2 if you're not already there. And here we have in verses 1 through 18 the dream of a man. It's a distressful dream. And essentially the message is if you can tell it and explain it to me, you will live. If not, you will die. Let's start with verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Now when the king is saying, my spirit is anxious to understand the dream, um, he is impelled to know what in the world did I just see. He is uh, disquieted within his soul, much like Pharaoh was in Genesis 41 when he had a dream of the coming famine that would take place. His spirit, Nebuchadnezzar's spirit, is agitated. He is utterly restless. And so, he asks the wise men to do something. But the wise men respond, not with wisdom, but with ignorance. And this is why. Because the gods of the wise men are not transcendent, but are indifferent to the plight of men. Let's read in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we'll declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm. But if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. 
And as much as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the king which the king the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So here you've got these magicians, these wise men, saying, Hey king, what you're asking is crazy. But the problem for them is the king doesn't care. If you can't come up with the goods, you will be utterly destroyed. And then what we see is we see Daniel asking a question. He wants the facts. He wants to be clear on the issue. And really the issue is produce or die. Look at verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now where the text says that Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. There's different translations. Uh, the NIV says wisdom and tact. Uh, the New English Bible says approached him cautiously and with discretion. The ESV, which many of you have, says prudence and discretion. The bottom line is this. Um, he is approaching this man with skill and with tact. And Daniel is d demonstrating to us how if you're in a situation of public service, you don't just go in any old way and say whatever you want. There is a way to approach authority. And right here, he models for us skill and tact. Verse 17 says this, Then Daniel, when he found out what was going on, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Produce or die. Tell me what I dreamed and tell me what it means. That's an impossible request, humanly speaking. And Daniel knows if God does not reveal to us the matter and explain it to us, to me, we're dead. So what did he do? What did he do? He did what all of us here do, right? When anxiety grips our hearts and, and we think we, we just might die. Well, some of us here probably haven't had an experience like that. But some of us may. And what, what do we do? Do we pray? I hope we do. Make it your aim to pray, but that's what they do. Why? Because extreme circumstances call for extreme actions. And prayer here is an extreme action in response to an impossible situation. What is it that they request? They want to ask God to have compassion on them. Now this term compassion, the Hebrew word, has to do with God's tender mercies that are connected to God's free love and His grace. So thus His punishment, God's punishment, is preferred over man's wrath. In 2 Samuel uh, 24, 
we have the account of David where he commits a sin against the Lord by taking a census. And in response to David's transgression, the, the, the seer Gad gives him three alternatives. You choose, David, the punishment you're going to get. One of them was seven years of famine. The second one was you're going to flee three months before your foes. And the third one was three days of pestilence in your land. And you know what David says? He says this, I'm in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So he doesn't want to be fleeing for three months from his enemies. He'd rather have either seven years of famine or three days of pestilence. Why? Because David understood the mercy of God. David understood that while God was holy and just and good, He was nevertheless merciful as a father is to his children. And so when he says, Give me, let, let me fall into God's hands, he's saying, you know what, God in His mercy will deal rightly with me. Even though there's punishment, the mercy of the Lord is not removed from His covenant people. Even though you are naked in distress and you are being beheaded, if you are His, His love is not removed from you, Christian. You have to read your Bible. You have to read your Bible. You cannot make deductions that are unbiblical and think you are walking in the light as He is in the light. But why do I say that? Because a lot of times we have a hard time reconciling why am I suffering or why does this person going through such horrific experiences and they love God? The question almost to me, the older I get, is, is, is almost... How do I say it? It's almost a grammar school question. And here's what I mean. If you take seriously that the Word of God from beginning to the end is the Word of God, you will see that God, above all things, never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He has always dealt with His people in certain ways. He has never, when they are going through hardships, ever removed His love from them. In fact, Jesus says in the New Testament that blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so whether it's physical abuse or it's verbal abuse, it doesn't mean that God has removed His love from you. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is you're very limited in your understanding. But as we're going to see, you can trust the God who has spoken. Now, the root word for compassion has essentially two, it's used in two ways. One of them, it depicts the strong attachment God has toward His redeemed people as a father. He shows pity on His children as a father does to his own offspring. And secondly, it deals with his unconditioned choice of Israel where God freely chooses to be gracious and merciful to them. 
as you read your old, what we call the Old Testament, you see the history of Israel. God rescues them. They rebel. They go into captivity. They cry out for mercy. God rescues them. They rebel. They go into captivity. It's just this endless this, this cycle of rescue, rebellion, and again, you know, crying out for mercy, and then God responding. And if it were not for God's tender mercies, there's no way any of us could stand before His holy presence. Impossible. So what do we do? We need to run to God. When everything's falling apart, we need to run to God, not run away from Him. Here we're encouraged to run. Why? Because extreme measures or extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. So there's the situation. You got a dream. The king has an impossible request. And Daniel's response is to pray. Now, what are the results? Verses 19 through 35. The dream's revealed. The dream is revealed and God is praised. I want to ask you something. When you pick up your word, do you rejoice at God's revelation? As if you've just found hidden treasure. Is, is, is that an experience in your life? See, because here we're, we're reading something that already took place and, and Daniel uh, was a prophet, a statesman. But we, we, we can tend to read this and go, well, yeah, that was Daniel. But he didn't, he, I don't think he realized this was all going to be inscripturated as it is right now, as we have these 66 books in the Bible. But do you ever realize that this, this Bible actually is the Word of God? That it actually is the Word of God. That the Creator of heaven and earth who spoke all things into existence out of nothing. Not because He had to, but because He freely chose to. Because it was His good pleasure to do so. That God has chosen to reveal Himself in a book. Do you ever ponder that? Do you doubt that that's even really true you need you need to deal with those doubts you need to wrestle with them but the claim of scripture is that God has spoken he's not silent because he is the one true God so let's read verse 19 then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision then Daniel blessed the God of heaven Daniel said let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him it is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. You hear that pronoun you a lot? And what, what, what God does? 
what he does. Let's look at that. First of all, Daniel's response is he praises God. He rejoices at the word of the Lord. He rejoices at it. The psalmist, you read the Psalms. I mean, the, the, the psalm, I love what the psalmist says. He says that your word to me is better than thousands of gold and silver pieces. There is nothing, there is no treasure that can compare to God's Word. So he praises God. And the name is the focus. The name is the focus of the praise. What is the name? It is Yahweh. It is I Am. It is the covenant name God used in Exodus 3 where He reveals Himself to Moses and gives Him the Ten Commandments. It is the name of the self-existent One. It is the name that reveals the nature, character, attribute of this God. Nothing that we know exists of itself. There is nothing in creation by definition that can. Because everything in creation is needy, contingent. It depends on something greater than itself to exist. Well, the God of Israel, who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is unlike any other. Because He's the one true God and all others are imposters. That's why, think about this, that's why when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through Me, Jesus is saying, look, there is no other way because there are no other gods. That's what He's saying. And the full revelation of of, of the invisible God you see in me. He's the God of creation. And He's Israel's God. By grace. Through the covenant which God assured would be kept. He swore to Abraham, you will be a father of many nations. And he swore by no name higher than his. And one thing we know about God is when he says he's going to do something, he will do it. And Daniel knows it very well. So he's the God of creation. Wisdom and power. When he says that God, for wisdom and power belong to him, this is not the wisdom and power that we have. Okay? Why? Because we're creatures and he's the creator. When you're reading the Bible, if you can keep that distinction as a filter of how you interpret, it's going to help you a lot. See, God's wisdom and power is absolute. How do we get wisdom? How do we get understanding? Well, we build on it a little bit here, a little bit there, right? God doesn't. God has complete wisdom, complete knowledge. And if you think, think, think about this. The kind of power, the kind of wisdom 
it would require to speak the worlds into existence through the Word of God. This wisdom has the idea of knowledge that's arrived at through accurate discernment. The ability to apply that knowledge effectively to the task to which must be done or to the decision that must be made. God gave that wisdom to Daniel and his three friends. And when we're talking about understanding, it's the ability to distinguish between what is real from what is fake, what is true from what is false, what is evil from what is good. So God, in His wisdom, completely knows all things as they really are. And that is why He can reveal to Daniel what the dream was and what the dream meant. So God's understanding is absolute. And it's absolute in light of His power. God's power, another word used, is His omnipotence. Which has to do with Him being all-powerful. Describes God as the one who can do all His holy will. Let's face it, God can't lie. He can't swear by anyone greater than He. He can't cease to exist. He can't sin. It's not in line with His nature. But He can do everything that's consistent with His holy character. And as Creator, He spoke the worlds into existence from nothing. And therefore, it's more reasonable to say that this God is pretty powerful. Wouldn't you say? You and I create things out of stuff we get, right? I've been at a... Um, a client's house for quite some time now, um, building stuff. But whatever it is we're building, believe me, I'm not speaking it into existence. I'm going to Home Depot and getting the stuff and trying to put it together. And if the client doesn't like the way it looks, now we've got to change it, right? It's a lot of fun. <laughs> so what does this sovereign God of wisdom and power do? I, I want to focus on this. This is fascinating. And, and, I, and I ask you, let the Word of God speak. Let it make you uncomfortable. Because this wisdom and power is illustrated by what he does, what Daniel says he does. Number one, he changes the times and the epochs. Now by doing this, he's illustrating that he's completely in control over the events in history. Especially those areas of history where the, unpre where, where the unpredictable of turn of events, things are reversed, they seem like they're going one way, and all of a sudden, they win another. How did that happen? Well, one of the things that people say is it was luck. Right? It was luck. It was fate. But please don't tell me that a personal, all-powerful God actually is in control. That I can't stomach. 
For some reason, we hate that. That really bothers our sense of autonomy, which is very limited because we're contingent. So, he changes, he is who changes the times and the epochs. That word changes has to do, it's a term where a thing, the purpose of a thing is altered, it's made to be different, or it's frustrated. Okay? And in this book of Daniel, we have many illustrations of these changes. For example, um, in chapter 3, um, Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill the Hebrew children who refuse to bow down to his, the golden idol. Throw them in the furnace. What does God do? I don't think so. He changed. What the king purposed? No. Okay? That's just one clear example. So what does he change? He changes the times and the epochs. Now, the word times has to do with a duration. It involves specific conditions. It can also mean specific definite time, such as a year. We're in the time 2015, and it is quickly passing away. But when he's talking about epochs, this term is used to point out specified times, appointed times, even seasons. And we see this in Daniel chapter 7, where it is a, there is an appointed time for the Ancient of Days to rule. Where there are uh, appointed times, uh, for example, in the book of Esther, where they inaugurate Purim festival. These are appointed times. Ecclesiastes 3.1 says there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. My question is this. Who's making the appointment? I understand there's human agency. But who's ultimate here? Who's making the appointment? When you take these terms together, it indicates that God, not the creature, is in absolute control of history. Listen to what one theologian says. God determines when in history events are to take place and how long each process or phase in history is to endure. Thus Yahweh not only decreed the fall and destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., an event future for Daniel in 602 B.C., but also the exact years the captivity would last. Daniel chapter 2, no, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, Daniel is reading. Let me read this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel realizes 
what God has previously said through Jeremiah, the time's up. So what does he do? Does he just sit there and do nothing? No. Daniel prays. I thought God was just going to do what he's going to do. Well, God in his sovereignty has chosen to use prayer and the prayer of his people as a means to fulfill what he's going to do. Well, how can that be? It's it's everywhere in the Bible. And everybody needs to wrestle with that. And the thing you do not want to do is come up with the unbiblical conclusion that it doesn't matter what what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. Because it does. It does matter how you live. It does matter what you do. It's a tension in the Bible that's known as divine sovereignty and human freedom. How do those work together? I'm still wrestling with it. But I can see clearly that it's there in the Scriptures. And I can't deny that. I will not not read into the text what's... It's not saying. I had a conversation with my dear friend a couple weeks ago. We were talking about this this whole notion of, um, you know, that God is in absolute control of, of history. And he's a Christian, loves Jesus, and he's not convinced of that at all. And I took him to a passage, a couple passages, one in Hebrews where it says that it's appointed unto man once to die, then comes the judgment. Who's making the appointment? It just Does it just happen? Appointments are made by persons. Come on! I have a day timer I don't use very much anymore. You guys probably use your your iPhones now uh, for, for scheduling. But somebody's always making an appointment. have to reason. You're going to have to wrestle with that text. Don't just tell me, I, I don't believe that. Okay, okay, fine. Why don't you believe it? What's the alternative? I, I, I talked to him, uh, went to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I'm sorry. Paul is before the Athenians. And here's what he says. Verse 26, chapter 17. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Okay? So here's, here's a plain reading. Okay? Somebody's doing the determining, and it's not the creature. It's the creator in context here having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Do you know what the boundaries are? Where are you going to live? Well, why did he do that? That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. What's Paul saying there? I think Paul's saying there what Daniel is saying in chapter 2. God is in way more control of your life than you really want to own up to. 
And there's probably tons of things going through your mind right now. Especially the bad things that happen to you. How could God let that happen? I ain't going there right now. It's not my purpose. But what I do know is this. He's the sovereign. I'm not. He's the gracious one. He's the creator. I owe my life to Him. So as Job did, I must do. When I finally have wrestled with trying to figure certain things out and I can't anymore, I need to just trust Him. That He can be trusted. So if He changes the times and the epochs, then it's consistent that He would remove kings and establish kings, right? Yes, yes, the answer is yes. Absolutely, okay. So when it says He removes them, it has to do with, it means that they either pass away or their rule is passed on. And uh, we see this in Daniel 4:31 and following, where Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is removed from him and given to another. Why? Because of his pride. He would not acknowledge God. And not only does he remove them, but he establishes them, which means that he makes them to stand, to arise. He sets them up. He installs them into power even though human agency is involved. Listen to Psalm 75, 1 and 8. We give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks for Your name is near. Men declare Your wondrous works. Listen to this wondrous works. It's totally tied to what we're talking about. When I select an appointed time, this is God, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. What do you think that insolent pride might be? Yes, we can. Yes, we did. Campaign slogan. I don't care what party you're part of. Verse 6, For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. That's why he's saying, don't, don't be boastful. Why? But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Objection! Does this include evil rulers? Godless rulers? Does it include that? How do we know it does? Because Nebuchadnezzar was an evil ruler. He was a pagan. That's hard to swallow, isn't it? We have all these preconceived notions. My wife came from Cuba, guys. Her family in Cuba lost everything they had. There is a bitter taste, an acid taste in their mouth. Those who have survived of what Fidel Castro did to them and to untold millions destroyed lives 
problems? Was that an accident? Are you uncomfortable? Does this bother you? I mean, if it does, you're, you're not, you're, you're normal. Does it bother you? I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, man, why? Why? The context is undeniable. Even evil rulers. Remember that all power and wisdom belong to God, not the creature. How can this be? God is working all things according to the counsel of His will, not ours. God is God and we are not. And there's the rub. God is God and we are not. And from Genesis all the way through Revelation, in the garden when you see you know, questioning, um, you know, God's goodness, His integrity, has God said, you know, God wants to keep something from you. You know, they disobeyed. Why? Because God can't be trusted, right? Because He's really not looking out for your best interest. That's the lie of the serpent, and it's perpetuated a billion times over, all the time. It's just always, it's the same old song and dance. That's what it is. It's the same old song and dance and every generation has to deal with seeing it for what it is. It's a lie. And if you don't see it for a lie, then it still doesn't mean it's not true. So what else does this uh, all-powerful, all-wise, sovereign God do? He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. That's what He does. So whatever wisdom, whatever knowledge the unbeliever achieves, they are image bearers. They reflect God's image. Um, it's only from God's good graces that it is achieved. Even though they may suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 tells us. God gives wisdom to wise men. Now check out the context. Again, context. Who are the wise men here? Who are the wise men? It's not a rhetorical question. Who are the wise men in this context? Just like in this context, who is the evil ruler? Who's the evil ruler in this context? Nebuchadnezzar. Who are the wise men here? Who? Daniel and his three friends. This is how we do Bible study, folks. This is how you get at... No, I'm serious. This is how you learn to get the meaning out of the text without... Anyway. It's Daniel and his three friends. Who are they? They are, first and foremost, men of the covenant. They're men of the Word of God. Do you understand 
that it is from God that wisdom comes? I mean, I worked for a corporation that I will not mention. And I could not believe the foolishness of its leadership. They could not distinguish right from wrong. They would punish those who deserved to be rewarded and rewarded those who deserved to be fired. Do you, do you, I'm a little passionate about that, huh? Yeah, I can't stand it. But what do you do? Wow. Lord, there's very, very little godly wisdom in corporate entities if they're not submitted to you. Worldviews govern the way people live. Do you understand that? What that means is that if you want to bring in the Christian worldview to bear on how public policy is formed, it's equally as viable as the atheists. Because that atheist also has a worldview. It's equally as viable and it should be allowed like the pantheists which believe that you know God is in all and all is God. One of the manifestations of that is you, you, you want to practice some yoga? It's one of the manifestations. You know, the, the New Age movement want to teach you how to visualize things. What do you think that comes from? It's out of midair? No, that's a religious worldview that's propagated. It's an Eastern religious worldview, which is fine now in the West because God knows uh, Christianity is just awful. It is the scourge of the earth. Really. You know, it's easy to spout out things. It's a lot more work to actually argue. And Christian, I want to encourage you, whenever you hear a truth claim, don't go, oh, wow, well, that's nice. Don't do that. Don't do that. Start doing this. What, what did you just say? Okay, what does it mean, and how do you know? And why should I care? It's your God-given right to think well. It is. It's a gift. And in our culture, it is literally getting trashed. But if the church is the pillar and the, 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 the depository of truth, not, the, not, not school, not the media, not any other entity, then we are responsible to get better at thinking. The better we get at it, the more we emulate our Lord Jesus Christ. So He gives wisdom to wise men and He gives knowledge to men of understanding. So as the wise, those who have the knowledge of the Holy One, more understanding is given to them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. That's Psalm 111.10. Psalm 119.98 says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. You're going to give someone 
the right to command you how to live. i say this over and over again. It's either the creature or the creator. That's a pretty concise little sentence, isn't it? You are going to give someone the authority to command you how to live. Is it the creature or is it the creator? Because that's ultimately what we're dealing with. And when we're doing Bible here, we're trying to come under the Creator. That's the claim. That's the claim of Christianity that God has spoken in His Word. So, what else does this awesome God do? He reveals the profound and hidden things. So, so far, He changes times and epochs. He exalts and demotes rulers and he increases wisdom and knowledge to people of the covenant. But now, he reveals the profound and hidden things. What does what this reveal? What's this word mean? It has to do with uncovering that which was previously hidden. God reveals to Daniel what the Lord knows concerning the dream and concerning the meaning. And when it's talking about here that he reveals that which is profound, it has to do with things that are deep. Those which are hidden that God completely knows. Because another of the attributes of God is that not only is he all-powerful, he's all-knowing. Now, I want you to understand... All of these attributes of God that I'm declaring that the Word teaches have all come under attack. They've all come under attack. Some people uh, think that uh, there's no way that God could know uh, the future. Why? Because if that's the case, then uh, my, my act as a human being, my will, is not free to truly choose. kind of goes like that. But the Bible is a Bible of prophecy. You know what prophecy is? God says this is going to happen before it happens. By the way, that was the bulk of the preaching in the book of Acts. The bulk of the preaching was fulfilled prophecy. You have in certain areas, you know, like Paul is... Uh, 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 preaching and arguing from general revelation from the creation. But for the most part, it's God has fulfilled what He said He would do. So to say that God cannot do that is to completely and totally dismantle the Gospel. When in Scripture, clearly He does. He does, in, even in the book of Daniel. You're seeing fulfilled prophecy just in the book of Daniel. The attacks on this book from liberal, anti-supernatural scholars is that God just can't do this. Which to me is, is um, mind-boggling, and this is why. If the claim of this book is that this God is self-existent and spoke the world into existence out of nothing, what can be, what can be harder than that? Really, come on! I'm just—I'm not even—I'm not even arguing if it's if it's um, uh, true. I'm just arguing that it's a reasonable deduction. Just there, how's that? It's a reasonable deduction. So for me to think 
that God could do this is not irrational, but it is completely consistent with my worldview. Here, what we have here is revelation and reasoning coming together. Here what we have is the God who is there is also not silent. He communicates with his image bearer, Daniel. This is awesome. This is the claim of Scripture. That God has spoken in time, space, history, and all other sources are imposters. Pure and simple. They, they, I'm not saying they don't have residues of truth. I'm saying they don't compare to God's self-disclosure in this, this book. I'm not saying you can't learn good things from other uh, religions. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is they don't cut it. Because just like there's only one true God, there's only one true book. And the day is coming, and we will see here, where everyone's going to know it. So what is Daniel's response to his and his friend's answer to their prayer? This is awesome. Verse 25, Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, Whose name was Belteshazzar? Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. You know what he's saying right there. None, none of your supposed wise men got the goods. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries had made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me, more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. What a model of humility. Daniel just points back and gives all the credit to where it's due. It's due to the Lord. There is a God in heaven, he says. This is, don't miss this. Unlike the gods of the Babylonians who were derivative and many, the God of Israel who puts you into power, Nebuchadnezzar, is ultimate, self-existent, and does not, and does what no other God can do. And what, what is that? He reveals mysteries. That is, what is about to be revealed will show you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that you and your kingdom will not last, that there's an expiration date not only on your life, but also to your rule. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So here we transition from the dream of a man to the meaning of his rule. 
And there's a difference here between earthly kings and kingdoms and the heavenly king and the heavenly kingdom. Essentially, one is temporal and the other is eternal. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Look at what God did to this heathen. He gave him... You can't get any clearer than this. You understand? The power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Do you see God moving? Does it mean that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't have a will and that his choices don't matter? Clearly not. But Nebuchadnezzar's a creature. He's not the creator. Therefore, he is not ultimate. God is. Verse 39, After you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another, another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, and as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. What are these four kingdoms? It's the Babylonian, it's the Medo-Persian, it's the Greek, and it's the Roman. And what God is saying here is that God's ultimately responsible for who rules. This doesn't mean, again, that our choices are not significant. They are. They're just not ultimate. God's are. Why? Because He alone is all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, etc., etc., etc. That's why God determines when, where, and the duration of nations that rule. Do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about the United States? I mean, do, do, do you guys think about, wow... God, you're the one in charge, ultimately. Wow. The all-wise God, in His providential will, works in the tapestry of history those things that are hidden to us. Have any of you ever looked at a tapestry? Have any of you ever looked at a tapestry from the back? Have any of you ever looked at a tapestry from the back and just one little piece, a keyhole? Have you ever done that? Okay, good. Do you think you got the whole picture? Thank you. That's all I want to say. Okay. So, so we go from the earthly king and the earthly kingdoms now to the heavenly king and the everlasting kingdom. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true, 
and its interpretation is trustworthy. A couple of notes I want to make here. First of all, God's kingdom alone is everlasting. He is the one who never changes. All of us in here change. Things change. Relationships change. Dreams shattered. Kids go astray. Marriages fall apart. Your mind, your mind, you might be losing it. No, really. But God doesn't change. He's the only constant. He's the only constant. Put your trust in Him. God's kindness reveals the future too. And and this is something that is very dear to me. People then, and still today, they go to soothsayers. They go to tarot card readers. They want to know what the future has in store. God prohibits that. Why? Because it will lead you astray from the one true God. Okay? Only God's revelation is trustworthy because it comes from the all-knowing, all-powerful one. Thus you can trust the revelation. I'm going to give a plug to my blog post. It's called AnswersToToughQuestions.wordpress.com In it, I I got a response from somebody from um, the UK and um, essentially they said, um, I grew up in a Christian home but um, have found uh, much... uh, deeper meaning of, um, and truths of God through the Vedas, which are Hindu, Hindu scriptures. And I'm going to respond to this person. I'm just going to, I'm going to ask some questions. First of all is, um, what kind of a Christian home? People can call themselves Christian, right? I'm going to ask, um, did, did you read the scriptures? Can you, te- can you tell me what the overarching uh, message of the scriptures is? I'm just going to ask questions. I, I don't want... Um, I just want to f- find out where th- this person is from. Uh, and I'm, I'm also going to ask them, you know, uh, what makes you think that the God of Scripture is just like the God of the Vedas? Just the fact that somebody would say that, it's like, see, you guys got to understand this. Scri- <laughs> scripture, the Old Testament, New Testament, there's nothing like this book that declares the one true God. There's nothing like it. But He is self-existent. And so when other truth claims come your way, you need to understand where are they coming from? How do they know this? Why do they trust it? Whose kingdom is it? It's the kingdom of Christ. Revelation 2, 26-27 says this, He who overcomes and who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Revelation 19, 11-20. Let's just go through uh, 11-16. through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." 
And He will rule them with a rod of iron. And He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus came back the first time. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He's coming back as the warring king. It's going to happen. And are we ready? Are you ready, friend? So I'm going to conclude. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Yes. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has has served notice to all mankind that the kings and kingdoms of this present evil age really are temporary. There's a coming king whose kingdom is eternal and all the enemies of this king will be damned. Even though Daniel didn't know it, it was Jesus of Nazareth who will come again to slay the nations who don't bend the knee. That's what the dream of a man and the meaning of his rule is. It's passing away. That's the message in chapter 2. We have elections coming up. Dear Jesus. What's going to happen? I'm, I'm concerned. Even though I believe God is working through it all, and He is ultimate, I'm still concerned. Why? Because my choices and your choices matter. How will you vote? But regardless of how you do vote, do not make this mistake of putting all your hope in a candidate. That's utter folly. Always has been, always will be. Who knows? You might be able to sleep better at night. Our rulers and those in authority, while they are ultimately placed there by God, are going to answer to God for how they rule. They're not ultimate. God is. I think this includes employers, teachers, parents, clients, coaches. I don't think there are coincidences. I don't. I've not thought this way the majority of my Christianity either. This space-time historical reality is not a dream. It's actual. So our choices in how we live have far-reaching results. The God of heaven and earth is both transcendent and eminent. While He's the Creator and Absolute Sovereign, He's also intimately concerned with the affairs of men and is moved by our troubles. He is moved by your troubles. As Creator, He is nevertheless eminent. Your fears, your doubts, your pain, your suffering... He is sovereignly moving in the kings and kingdoms of the earth which are doing His bidding. They're not ultimate. God is. And their choices nevertheless are significant and matter. And so do yours. God's kingdom alone is everlasting. And as such, to not submit to His rule and reign, which means to bend the knee to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
is madness. It is the worst investment that you didn't make. Don't you see? Don't you see that he cares for you? Look at how he dealt with Daniel. You can trust him in your pain. You can trust him in your doubts. Deal with your doubts. Attack the hard questions. But you can trust him nevertheless. Extreme circumstances call for extreme actions. We need to be people of prayer. To the God of creation. To the one true God. We need to run to God who is the source of life alone. And we need to pour out our hearts to Him. His tenderness, His power will meet you where you are at. And finally, we need to find our rest in Him. We need to rest under the shadow of the Almighty. Why? Because He really is in control of all history. And even the things you think aren't important to Him, they are. It's just who He is. So Lord, I thank You that You are the God, the transcendent, eminent God who reveals mysteries just like You did in the book of Daniel. I pray that we would order our lives here and those even who hear uh, this sermon through the internet or any other means. I ask God that we would order our lives around Your rulership your kingship, that we would not just think about now, but that we would look to the future. And I pray, Lord, that You would make the word that was preached, whatever I said that wasn't of You, may it fall on deaf ears, but, oh God, may the implanted word of God, that which was from You, Lord, may it penetrate and restore and save souls. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.